Hola, I am Pia Cruzalegui, and welcome to a new episode of Oral Fixation. This is a two-part episode due to the nature of its content. I met my next guest back in 2014, the year I started graduate school. My biggest excitement then was that she, like me, has roots in South America. Since then, we have somehow worked together either in art or outside of art. <laughs> At first glance, her works are multichromatic, drawings and paintings exploring an intimate relationship with color. Janice Marin is an artist whose research practice evolves from deep reflection surrounding memories, family life, oral histories, and self-discovery, and her works, like this interview, unpack an undeniable vulnerability and authenticity. I am taking also this opportunity to kick off a series of interviews to celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month and Janice's interview leads the way with some personal histories unraveled in part two of this episode. So here we go. Janice, walk me through your process, which you call sketchbook studies. What is that like for you? What I find interesting about my sketchbook is that I started this sort of repetitive practice of, of drawing in the sketchbook um, more than anything during, during the beginning of, of COVID or the pandemic. And I think at the time I wasn't in a place where I was feeling inspired to, to be painting necessarily or to, um, you know, it was, it felt like such a, a period of transition where I didn't feel I could pull all my paints out because I was in this place of unknown. Uh, but in my sketchbook, in the, when I started to do this practice, I, you know, was drawing and sketching in it every day. And it was an outlet. And I use color pencils, um, which are, you know, they're so, color pencils are so, so, they're associated with, you know, maybe the lower form of art or, you know, kids, like children uh, like to use color pencils a lot. And it was really liberating to use them. Uh, and so I started using them in my sketchbook, uh, but I started to create sort of a routine and a practice with that where I would only, first of all, I only color on the right page. I don't color on the back side of the page. Uh, and then the first book that I fully completed, I only did a series of spheres. Uh, and the sphere created sort of a structure for me where I could draw this circle and then fill it. Uh, and so it created sort of like a recipe uh, and a, a known comfort that I was using daily as a practice of being creative, but also exploring color in a way that I hadn't done in a long time. Uh, so that was how my practice of sketchbook is. Uh, I definitely now, uh, it now since the beginning of that now it's become integral to my process uh, more than it was at the beginning i think at the beginning it was just a, 
a free place for me to just be expressing and creating and drawing and drawing and drawing. But now it's like an integral step where I'm able to process concepts and ideas and without any sort of fear of uh, materials or or even uh, some of the some of the decisions that you can make afterwards like size and things like that so it's sort of it's like this playground or this this space of freedom uh, so yeah so that is my process in the sketchbook um, and of course we're probably going to talk eventually talk about color this is great because i always wanted to ask you but now i have an excuse because i have a podcast <laughs> so bring it on my relationship with color has definitely gone through a process of growth and i would say before graduate school i always felt very comfortable using a lot of color which i think could work against you at some sometimes or at least you know, the sort of this like freedom of having all the colors uh, was something that I would use liberally. And I do have some pieces, I think they're hiding like in my grandmother's house somewhere where I don't think there was a single color I didn't put on that painting. So this sort of gluttonous, like I want all this color. Uh, I began there, but at some point uh, while we were in grad school and graduate school I realized that I was missing something when it came to color which was understanding each individual color for myself specifically and that maybe that was something that I needed to explore in in a more scientific or sort of in a process so what I did was I eliminated all color and then I started from the the first ever pigment which is carbon. Uh, and so I started by creating a series of works that were just uh, monochromatic and carbon. And then from that, I moved on to a second pigment. And I, I believe the next one was uh, Prussian blue. And I did an entire series of just Prussian blue. Uh, and then from there, I moved on to quinacridone purple, which is one of my favorite colors. I mean, I have several favorite colors, but that was so in each sort of step and stage of, of just using a single color, I think that just allowed me to understand my relationship to color. And then that started to be, it became very clear to me that I needed to be more deliberate in my color palette and what I was using. Uh, and, you know, that was two years. I did, I did that for two years. I would just use one color. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I remember. Yeah, I was fascinated, <laughs> like because I think that it takes courage to just adopt one color and try to right. create the things that you were doing then. Right, and and by doing that, I think it's a really good exercise because you're able to sort of teach yourself all the value scale of that specific pigment, uh, and then that becomes a skill that translates to all other colors. Um, so from that, now, the way that I see color is, is, you know, it's very specific. So I, the color palettes that I pick for my pieces individually are 100% tied to the experience that I'm trying to express in the work. Mm -hmm. So I have adapted that as sort of a, a type of signature that I include in my piece, which is usually at the top left corner. Mm -hmm. And I always call that the color key 
Um, although that is a technical term for printing, so I did do research on that. So I'm not going to say I. That's what I call it, but it's not really what it is because if we want to be technical, that's uh, associated with uh, a technique that already exists in industry. But but I still I call it that because to me it's sort of like a key that opens the door. Okay, but you're referring to the key legend, right? Right. I almost feel like I have to look at it so that it could map me into the painting. And, and I, I find that very playful. I think that uh, whatever the viewer wants to do with it, that certainly is something that I'm hoping that they decide to enjoy in the piece. Yeah. Um, I think that's great. I mean, I don't think that, you know, I have, I've, I've thought about it, uh, whether or not the order in which the colors appear, um, all those things sort of become part of what's coded into the the final painting, yeah. um, and and in a way, it's sort of uh, a little bit like an insight into the process of making the piece itself. It totally is. It's almost like a little gift. I'm going to show you how I did this. <laughs> yes, yeah. Or 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 look at this this color. This color was mixed for this specific thing right. it could come from an emotion it could be a symbol symbolic of an emotion that's tied to the piece and the story it's telling or it could be an attempt to make uh, some sort of memory cue for also for the piece like there is you know I've done some research in, in terms of like how color and memory works and uh, the I don't want to, I mean, I feel like anybody who's interested in researching that definitely research it and I don't want to give it away, but essentially from what I've finished learning from researching is, is, is that uh, we do not remember, we do not remember colors the way that they actually were, that we just remember a version of the color in which we have a memory for it. Um, like all memory. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, there isn't anything special in terms of like I, I definitely don't feel like I'm I'm making a claim like this was the color that it was. Uh, it's it's this is the closest I can get to what I think this color represents or replaces in the piece and what it's telling. So so I mix the paint uh, and. You know, it starts, but it starts, let's go back to the sketchbook. Like it starts in the sketchbook. I'm making decisions. The sketchbook is a way for me to kind of process what I want to do. I make decisions based on my color palette. Uh, I try to push my color palette. I try to not always be in the comfort zone of my favorite colors because I definitely have some. Uh, but I'm, I'm sort of... Um, you know, having like this conversation with myself, not literally, but in making my decisions on what I'm drawing and what colors I'm going to choose for that, I am trying to work both with what makes sense logically and then also with what I feel. And, um, and then I mix those paints previous to painting uh, and I name them. In a way, that's like my own pleasure, though, because, you know, I don't think it would, it, it doesn't matter. It's not like the name of the color isn't recorded in the painting other than the fact that I use that color. But I've named the color and it's 
connected or associated to what it is that I'm making. Uh, and, and so it becomes part of the story. I think one of my favorite colors, which isn't even a nice color, honestly, like it's not even a color that I love. Um, it's called 90s Kitchen Cabinet. You know, <laughs> and it's like, it's that color, that color that I remember that the kitchen cabinets in the 90s were like this really like yellowed varnish, Yes. you know, um, and it could have just been my kitchen cabinets and it's probably completely wrong. I mean, I don't even, I think that the house, when, when I was a teenager, I don't think that house still, ex- those cabinets still exist. Uh, but yeah. if I if I can remember, that's the color, and so with it, with that color comes almost like all these like fragmented um, memories or or associations with being in that space. Right. So you know, I name it. It's kind of funny. I will say though, if I use a pure color out of the tube. Okay. It's out of the tube and it doesn't change. So it's that only when you mix it, it's only when I mix gotcha. it. Do I name it and I make it, and then I and I tube it. I retube it so I have like a like a supply of that particular mix. Uh, and then you know if I find, I will use. I'll sometimes use that color in a different painting that may not be connected to that specific memory. But I mean that I feel like that to me is like speaks to just existence. So wait, you actually say something like, "Oh my God, where is that that '90s kitchen color?" My '90s kitchen cabinet, yes. Or I'm like, I per, like I need a little bit of '90s kitchen cabinet here, and I think so, that's so funny because I and and. You know, I don't, let's just say that this is just, this is part of my enjoyment of making the work. Um, I have a collection of these paints that I've mixed. Um, I am sometimes worried that I'm going to run out. So I have one color that I'm, that I'm, uh, I still have enough of it, but if I needed to use a lot of it, I would run out for sure. It's Mills Park Green. So it's the, it's Mills Park, which is a park here in Oak Park. Uh, and it's, it's, this perfect green for the grass during the summer uh and and i'd only i only have a little bit of it left so um but i suppose i could always just mix another tube and call it two mills park green too <laughs> it won't be exact though you know it won't be exact so that's okay yes i love that i think that's really endearing so it's sort of like my own entertainment too in 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 making the work uh, so is color the muse uh you know I never thought of it that way but it's definitely something that I look forward to and enjoy thoroughly like I really do mm-hmm. I love I love mixing colors and mixing paint so um yes <laughs> <laughs> officially it is now it's my muse yeah. I have seen pretty colossal work of yours pretty colossal drawings of yours And most recently, your focus is small. What happened? Uh, so I, I think about this still. Um, I, I think that whatever answer I give right now might not be the same answer six months from now, uh, just because I'm so in it. You know, I'm working now in these smaller pieces. Uh, and so it's probably something that will make a lot more sense in hindsight. But even then, I realized in working small, I I learn a lot 
from my large pieces. The large drawings were very gestural. They were very corporal. They took a lot of physical exertion. They were whole body movements. Uh, so, ex you know, expression. And I, I created what I would call sort of like this database of mark making during that period that needed to be my whole body. And, you know, I think that also makes sense to to what I was experiencing personally in, in terms of my personal life as well. Uh, but a lot of those marks that I've made in these large pieces, I, I recognize them as sort of a language in the small pieces too. And they're just as powerful. Maybe they're more concentrated, like they're, yes. and I don't need to use as many because I can just pick the right ones. You know, the sort of like learning an instrument where you, you learn the, the notes of an instrument so innately that at the point where you are performing, you start to be able to improvise because you already know, you know all the chords, you know how the instrument works. So that's beautiful. I th that's that's how I experienced like these big like the big pieces they were I needed to do that I I don't think I had ever released my body that way my gestures my like my hand mm -hmm. you know because when you work large and that's something I, that I try to do also in my teaching practice when I work um, in teaching it's like there is something that happens in the mechanism of drawing full size bigger than life mm -hmm. that you uh, that you need to sort of learn in movement mm -hmm. uh, and now I'm working in these smaller pieces but those marks are there they're familiar they're like notes like musical notes but they're also a collection that become part of this like small little portrait like glimpses so and and I do this the small pieces feel really almost like analog photographs mm -hmm. and I have like a strong connection to my analog photographs mm -hmm. uh, the ones that I have are very dear to me because they they tell me a story about my history mm -hmm. some parts I remember and some were told to me mm -hmm. So I feel like that's that's how they operate. Like they're smaller, you can hold them in your hands. Mm -hmm. um, I have a few large ones too, and 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 I'm and and like I said, you know, I'm still trying to make sense of this like size shift. Even between like the four feet piece, the four feet painting versus like the small eight by ten. And I mean, an eight by ten is such a standard size for a photograph, right? Uh, you know, I think about when I order photographs for my kids from their portraits from school, and we have these standard sizes, five by seven, eight by 10, you know, and, um, and my own like relationship to these, these sort of standard sizes. Okay. So yeah, I'm still, I'm still sort of processing okay. that shift. So dimensions is something that you think about also when you are preparing the work right absolutely my sketchbook is a standard size it's portable so it's something I can take with me no matter where I am which makes it actually really amazing because 
you know, no matter where I am, I can bring my sketchbook and my color pencils and I have like this outlet and space to be creative. Uh, and so I do that. I do that, um, you know, if I don't have time to do an entire painting, I can still make and work in my sketchbook. Right. But I have the sort of reoccurring theme or I don't want to say image because it's more than that. It's a place that I've painted uh, at least three times, if not more. And it reminds me of graduate school. <laughs> it reminds me of uh, Greg Bordowitz, okay. uh, the poem that became part of our final show to yes. uh, Robert Duncan, Often I Am Permitted to Return to a Meadow. Yes. So it's my meadow. And and so I've painted this particular space or place in different sizes. Mm -hmm. It's something I return to. Right. And, uh, and so that's part of, I, I feel like, I decided at some point that no matter what size I paint the paintings, like even if some of them are small, uh, if, I, if I want to, I can paint them again and paint right. them bigger. Yes. And they're and and it it they will still function and do what I want them to do. Mm -hmm. So, um, which is sort of if it's like a freeing. It was a freeing feeling to know that no matter what size I was working in, mm -hmm. uh, it would I could always paint it again. Yes, so. that's beautiful, and I'm glad that you brought up Robert Duncan because yes. he, yeah, he's a huge part of all of us. I think. So it, it is my meadow. It's a space. I will say it's a garden, uh, which, isn't, which is like a meadow in some ways, but it would be like my childhood, my formative years, the yes. garden that I was in and that I remember spending most of my time. There were tomato plants and zucchini, and I would make, um, I would make sculptures out of mud and dry them in the sun and then paint them with crappy... Was it like clay? Was it that the earth like clayish? It had some kind of substance to it, mm -hmm. but I was... It was like... the I have such a core memory of this experience of like um, being in the garden and making things out of, out of mud, out of clay, probably deep clay, because my grandfather would be in the garden working, attending to the to the tomato plants mm -hmm. and creating a sikya mm -hmm. to water the plants and teaching me about um, all the different plants there and how to do it and how to tie. He would tie the tomatoes with reeds mm -hmm. so it wouldn't damage the plants. Mm -hmm. and, and just like these very, ex these very important experiences with uh, caterpillars and nature and all the beautiful things that, that come with childhood. Right. So, so that is my meadow. And I have painted that garden uh, several times. Um, wow. And I will, I will never get tired of that, that space. Because each time I paint it, it feels a little different, but still, still true to, to the memory of it. Wow, that's really a beautiful thing to share. So here's a comment. So when I look at your work, I get a sense of longing, as if I were looking into an impossible riddle of which you are the sole holder of its answer. So what's this impossible riddle? <laughs> I don't know. Um, 
but I, I, I wish that you shared with me here and to the audience, what motivates you? I think I start, I start with, with a story. And it's a story about either a place or an experience or more than one experience in that place. Is it a real story or are you, re are you recounting, retelling, or is this completely fictitious? Everything's based out, off of a real story, but, you know, I, I, I take into consideration that the way that, you know, we all have versions of our own reality. You know, they're all sort of uh, stories from... The, specifically, like, the body of work that I've been focusing on now, it's all been my formative years. So what I can remember from the beginning of my memory existence to, to maybe, I would say, to maybe even a little bit into like nine, when I'm nine or 10. This is why when you said, is this like real? Is this based off truth? I know so much of, of probably these memories or stories are a combination of what I might remember and then also what I've been told, you know? So this like, and, and so much of our experiences that so this, like the space in between our own, our own emotion or feeling and then what we might be shown, like whether it's in a photograph or in, in an oral, uh, an oral story of that event or that thing. Uh, often I think to myself, was this something that happened or was this something that I saw in a photograph? So I've, I do think about that in a lot of ways. And some of these pieces that I've been working on now, they have to only be a memory or maybe they were a dream that now I think is a memory. I don't know. It doesn't really matter um, because my work isn't about, I don't, I don't think of my work as about memory. I think, I think all our works have an element of that in them whether we want to admit it or not so it's not specifically that mm -hmm. it's about creating a marker for whatever expression or thing that happened there's this one short story by uh, Borges it is the labyrinth it's the story of the labyrinth um, and I'm not going to go into it because I think if anybody um, wants to be Surprise? No, uh, yeah, I definitely don't. I feel like you Take have, yeah, you have to. Also, I believe I, um, it's been a while since I listened to this story, but in any way, in any case, these are sort of labyrinths, labyrinths between, uh, you know, symbols or the, the symbol of a feeling in tied into imagery. Maybe I've assigned an image, I've, uh, I've, I've attached an, Im an image uh, that symbolizes this experience or this event. Mm -hmm. And it's more than just the event itself or the setting of the event. It is the all sort of encompassing thing. So it's the feeling, the thing that happened, mm -hmm. what it means and what it symbolizes and then what it symbolizes to me now. Yes. So it jumps, you know, yes. it like kind of jumps um, time. So often, 
I have these these events or circumstances that I remember so so powerfully in my mind that I want to turn them into an image and some of them are very painful um, which at some point I may talk about or I may not not all of them I feel like even the ones that are connected to a memory that is painful those events and those things really informed me to be who I am today so you know even the things that are sometimes painful they they make you into the person that you are so I may want to talk about these pieces one day with my kids that would be amazing so you know I think about you know how we share images how we share images now I don't I feel like now we I'm still thinking about how we share images now in that they're so um, abundant like there's in a very cold uh, environment that dilutes humanity (laughs) I really shouldn't be saying this but I, I feel that there's a lot of that happening or like in excess, right? Like, like uh, I do have like a specific social media account that's just my family photos and not, you know, this is a, a private photo space where I'm just sort of trying to create like an album, like this virtual album. So that's a way of making a record and you share that with the people you're close to and those who are interested. Because, you know, our own personal stories, I feel like our, our personal stories and our memories or our dreams, like, no one's necessarily interested in those things specifically, but maybe the things that do translate are the the shared feelings. That's interesting because I I have a I know what you mean, and I agree with you. However, I think that there is a um, there is an underlying interest for our memories and our desires. And that's what algorithms are doing and collecting. They are True. stealing but the, our soul. The our motivation essence. for that is just for attention, right? So to maintain our attention and to sell, and to sell us. Yeah. I mean, that's attention is selling though, yes. right? I think that's like a whole nother podcast that you and I really should just come <laughs> and unpack it. We can just talk about that for mm-hmm. more than an hour. For sure, yes. Uh, but, you know, I don't know if I'll ever... Say, for example, uh, do you remember the time in your life when you told someone that you, that you love, that you love something and then they didn't believe you? The first time ever. And I, and I was trying to like quantify that to what do you call that? Would you call that being... Uh, like what? Like how do you how do you quantify that feeling to a word? Does a word even exist to explain how that feels when you're telling the truth and someone doesn't believe you? Oh gosh! The first time ever. Well, who's the recipient of the news? Does it doesn't matter in the Spanish world? There is a word that I think gets close to it: okay. desamor. Desamor. There is not such a thing in English. Right. 
but that's I think that's the one that gets closer to it. Um, so to not be believed. To not be believed, but also be rejected at the same time, right? So it's like that. There is a, a but it's a very profound rejection. Right. Uh, and, and that would be an example of the opposite of my meadow, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still something that I record because I think that that is a very significant event. And even without a word, being able to describe it or, or even to pinpoint it to one specific thing is um, through like creating an image is really the best way for me to express and so it is it is like so that is these are the types of things that I'm trying to recreate through imagery it's really powerful because I don't think a lot of people really unpack their true emotions and feelings I mean you have to dig deep for it and the spaces in your mind that you have to go to um, can be good but they can also be scary Yes, that's true. Thank you for sharing that. Well, now that we are talking about memories and past, and you know, you mentioned your kids as well. So, who's Janice Marin besides being an artist? I am a mother. Um, I was an artist first. I still am. Uh, it's funny how I, that automatically came out as a past tense. Uh, so, you know, I am. I have two wonderful beautiful children they're now young teenagers uh and I can't believe I'm saying that Uh, (laughs) and they grow fast right I'm also an educator Mm -hmm. uh, which in some ways is like an extension of of nurturing I I teach both college-aged students and also younger uh, kindergarten through I'd say fifth grade okay. which is a wonderful experience as well uh, I'm I I enjoy teaching both age groups is such a big sort of uh, gap between the young the young and also the the older group mm-hmm. uh, for different reasons so I'm an educator I'm a mother I'm a wife I am my other passions include cooking. Yes, and <laughs> we are all delighted about that part of it. Yes, I love to It's cook. also an art form. It is. Um, and there's a lot of love that goes into that. Yes. So, yes. Uh, and I feel like... I feel like that's... I mean, those are the main, the, my main parts of, of my identity. Okay. How difficult is it to be a practicing artist when you have all of these responsibilities? It is difficult. It's definitely difficult. I I see the advantages of not having all those responsibilities and the freedoms that it would provide in order to have more time or emotional space for making. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't, you know, I'm not, I, I don't... Um, I don't linger on that feeling. Mm-hmm. It's sort of something that I, I realized at some point and I let it go. Mm-hmm. I also realized that there are there is time and stages for life and 
there is a time for me to be present fully for my for my kids Mm -hmm. and that that is a blessing and that at some point I will move into a different stage in my life and they will be in college and I will have an abundance of of time to just make art so I feel like that's also part of why my sketchbook and drawing has become such a a a wonderful space for me to to just generate and and write I say write I mean draw but I'm writing in a sense I'm writing my memoir through my drawings and 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 then I'm thinking you know I'll make as much as I can but without feeling the pressure and the guilt and that's something I had to do I just had to let that go uh, simply because they you know depending on the age of your of your kids they need you uh, and your art to some people their art art is their kids and but they can wait like the art the making and the painting I you know I of course I would love to just have every day and all day to either research or paint um, but I am happy with with my my balance between being a mom and then also creating at the same time um, knowing that that eventually one day I'll have more time to paint and then I'll just probably miss my kids um, so <laughs> yes you probably will so you I probably will for sure right. you will <laughs> so I'm, I am I am enjoying the time that I have with them as much as I can now but but I can't help myself painting is something that I need to do it's not just it's not just a decision it's it's a it's an innate need yeah. um, you know and then sometimes if I can't paint I can draw, definitely. I wanted to talk about a, a little bit about Carbon Table. Are you ever going to reopen this amazing little space that you had once? You know, you're you're sitting at the Carbon Table. <laughs> 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 Literally, that's where the space. Is. This is where it happens. Uh, I would love to. Yeah, I would definitely love to. I I feel I work in like threes. So right now, it's being a mom being an educator and being an artist so there's those that's like my three so family art and and work right um my art is also my work but if i separate it into three so maybe at some point when there's like an opening <laughs> one of those threes <laughs> because when i was when i was really doing carbon table to it's like to its maximum where I really need, where I focus everything on it. And I had opened the gallery, uh, Marin Gallery, um, or if I want to say it correctly, Marine Gallery, right? Yes, Marine. Yes. Um, I, that was, that was all I, that was my, uh, that was my creative energy. That. I did not make any art during that time, which was good for me. It actually was really good because all of a sudden, I was being creative in a different capacity. I was thinking like outside of the space, but still being creative, but it wasn't sort of like making anything specifically like with my hands, but still thinking with my mind and then creating opportunities for other artists and sharing in that. Uh, but then that meant that I made no art. Right. <laughs> um, I've been, I've worn those shoes, so I right. do know how that is, yes. And there's nothing, and there's nothing wrong with that, um, but I, I missed it. And I missed making art and enough that I just don't think I would give that up right now right. again. Yes. Uh, yeah. So I guess 
the the, the short answer is yes. The, the long answer is I don't know when. Um, but, you know, I definitely, I love that part. And I think that's the part that satisfies, like, my research, like, researching and making these, like, yes these narratives you totally nailed it because i feel like when i was curating i it, it was i felt like that was my research yeah. and it just really helped me also understand art from a different perspective yes. where i am not you know this the focal point mm -hmm. but rather you know allow others to be that but organize them as well so it, it's i get it it's it's a different type of, of value in in the art world i thought this was a good point to break part two is a more intimate conversation that starts with me asking janice about her background so don't miss part two of the janice Marin episode to learn more about her practice and person